Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the federal government declared COVID-19 a national public health emergency, but was very late getting virus guidelines in Spanish. And why are many Latinos forced to check other on the 2020 census? Plus, will young Latino voters deliver a major impact on the outcome of the 2020 election? That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, got cabin fever? Come away with us in an otherworldly conversation about space-themed food and drink, cosmic crisp apples, and wine aged in zero gravity. Our food and wine experts are here for a snack, a sip, and a chat. But first, joining me to discuss the latest Latinx news, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And Marcella Garcia, editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Hello, Marcella. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. It's the old gang back together again, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Here we are. Well, let me start right off with the latest uh, COVID-19 news. Um, Florida Congressman Representative Mario Diaz-Balart has become one of the first two members of Congress to test positive for COVID-19. Um, he sent out a statement saying we must continue to work together to emerge stronger as a country during these trying times. They're not quite sure how he was infected, but, you know, the congresspersons are working in relatively close quarters, so one can see it. I should mention that Ben McAdams, of uh, who's a Democrat from Utah, is the other person. So first, let's get you all the way in on that. And I don't know where... Um, Diaz Bellart was before he got tested positive? In other words, was he someone saying, this is a public emergency, let's get on it, or something else? Yeah, I mean, Diaz Bellart represents um, Florida, so down in the Miami area. Uh, I, you know, he's, he's definitely a more moderate Republican, so he's not someone who kind of, uh, I wouldn't say he's a never-Trumper, but he's kind of like a somewhat never-Trumper. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I think for him, I mean, I think the bigger issue is more about the, what you just said, Callie, like, why are we still uh, not practicing social distancing practices in, yeah. in play? Like, why are politicians saying, hey, practice social distancing and then proceed to not practice social distancing? Yeah. I think we're at a time where virtual government has to be happening more and more. And even even like these White House press briefings, I don't know if you guys saw it like a, a week ago. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you've been at, you know, if you go to the White House, the uh, the press briefing room, it's not a big space. No. And, a, and it was crowded. And, and even Trump was, <laughs> Trump was like, don't 
you know, don't uh, don't congregate with people over, t- you know, groups of 10. And there were like 10 people like on the podium. So I think and like he was this, shaking their hands, but you know he stopped yeah. that at least. Yeah. So. But I think that's <laughs> I think the bigger issue is is let's stop pretending. You know, it's a definite mixed message. I about what's going on. It's like let's stop pretend. Like let's all practice social distancing, and that comes from politicians. That comes from the media. I want to just um, applaud GBH for saying everyone needs to go virtual. All your guests, and I think that's people need to start thinking like that and just do it. And yeah, and here, you know, here are the three of us like we're social distancing right now, like we're doing yeah. the show and we're <laughs> we're not near each other. So that I don't think has gotten into the mentality of the American psyche. And that worries me a lot. Marcella, when Tom Hanks came down uh, having tested positive, he and his wife, Rita Wilson, that seemed to wake up a lot of people who heretofore had been sort of suspicious that this was really a public health emergency. Um is the fact that Representative Mario Diaz-Balart, will that have a lot of resonance in Latino communities because he's tested positive and he's come out to say, listen, this is serious? Yeah, I, I, I kind of hope so. I mean, the reality is that even beyond the Latino community in Florida and Miami in particular, Miami is really emerging as a hot spot of the, uh, of the epidemic. I mean, you have we keep seeing these videos and these news reports of spring breakers basically, you know, just saying, I'm young, I, I you know, I had this trip planned, I don't care, I, I'll get tested when I get home. Or, you know, you see these beaches in, in Florida, you know, packed with people on spring break and still not getting the message. So hopefully the fact that Congressman Diaz-Balart tested positive is going to urge or is going to make uh, leaders there in in Florida, you you send mm-hmm. a stronger message. Uh, again, uh, you know, I mean, this is my uh, it's it's more than a week that that we at the Boston Globe have been working from home. You know, it's a mandatory work from home order. And honestly, you know, we've been we thought we were kind of late to be quite honest because yes. we, we've been saying we have to we have to act like we have the virus because mm-hmm. otherwise people are not going to get it. And that's the message that I right. think needs to happen uh, or needs to send that that all levels of government, state, local, federal, need to send to people because they're not going to get it. Yes, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson tested positive, I think was sort of like, uh, you know, a moment that where people went like, oh, wow. You know, I keep seeing all my friends, all my Latino friends on Instagram share their stories about, you know, what Ricky Martin is saying and that, you know, Alejandro Sanz is, is yeah. you know, very famous Latin singers saying that they're canceling their tours and, and how that is having an effect on them. And on the one hand, I feel sad because, okay, why did it have to take Ricky Martin canceling their tour yeah, for you to get the exactly. message? But on the other mm-hmm. hand, they exactly. are, um, you know, they are feeling the void. Uh, in messaging, right? And that they are okay. sending the, you know, the right note. So if it's going to take that, so be it. So that brings me to the point that though the federal government and these folks that you've mentioned are out there saying, you know, this is very serious, the federal government has no virus guidelines in Spanish. Julio, you just reported this. Yeah. I mean, I think what it is, it's, it's actually the new guidelines. So let me just uh, kind of give people a TikTok about this. On March 16th, which was the Monday uh, before St. Patrick's Day, you know, the president came out and with there were new virus guidelines basically saying, you know, groups of 10, if you're an over, don't, you know, don't congregate in uh, avoid social gathering in groups of 10 people, elderly people stay home. Like it was pretty clear. Like it says, if you're elderly, stay home. 
And what was interesting is that they, that got shared and it was shared to the media. And around like six, seven o'clock, I was like, where's the Spanish version? Because, you know, I think, you know, there's over 30 million people in the United States that at least that's what Pew says that speak Spanish in, in the home. And so I I called up the White House and I said, hey, where's the Spanish version? Um, it took about 18 hours to get an answer uh, from them. And then as of, I believe, Wednesday evening, they had it translated. So they had they um, they had they had the text translated uh, Tuesday night. And then on Wednesday evening, they actually designed the cards that people could share in Spanish. But the point being here, Callie and 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 that's just Spanish. I mean, you know, the C, if you if you go to the CDC website in Spanish, the week uh, the the information was like a week behind. Um, yeah. And and also they only have Chinese. And so I start thinking about the multilingual aspect of all this. And and this is the reason why this is important and, and actually why I feel like we have to hold government information sharing accountable is the fact that this is real time. You, you know, every hour matters in this crisis. And if you're not thinking holistically is if if you're, quote unquote, you know, if the president of the United States says we're all in this together, then let's. Let's all be in this together. You know what I mean? It's like it's not just English speaking Americans that are in this. If you really are protecting the health and safety of the United States of America within its continue, you know, within where it is, you know, anyone who's part of the United States. And that includes Puerto Rico, which people are forgetting there. The crisis is happening there, too. There was a curfew in Puerto Rico. Over the weekend, I, you know, people are in lockdown in Puerto Rico and no one's really talking about that. And and I think this notion of we if we're going to look at this holistically, then the White House needs to take a leadership role. It shouldn't be local organizations, journalists, uh, political organizations that are translating things for for the people, especially if you want to share official government information. So in a way, um, what I wrote for Latino Rebels, I mean. It's just one microcosm of, of how information sharing is just not 100% up to par by the federal government still. No, I totally agree. The um, the, the Puerto Rico storyline is particularly interesting because Puerto Rico, we, we had an op-ed recently about the yes. need for Puerto Rico to take strong action early because of the vulnerabilities that the uh, island's um, public health system has in the wake of the hurricane, it has a completely decimated uh, public health infrastructure. So it was particularly poised to you know, be catas- catastrophic there if, if the epidemic you know, spread there. So you know, they, they, they were particularly poised for, for, um, for danger, but, but they, they are an island. So they have, you know, they, they, they have certain advantages. And so the fact that they acted that strongly, that they unlocked down, that there's curfew, I, I think that was amazing, and 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 I mm-hmm. think that was a good thing that needs to be recognized. That like Julio said, when Julio noticed here, you know, people kept talking about sheltering, you know, who, San Francisco Bay Area and sheltering place, New York City too, but really Puerto Rico led the way, which was kind of amazing. Again, given the uh, the stark uh, vulnerabilities that the the island faces, just in general, you know, let alone mm-hmm. COVID nineteen. Right. 
So one more just um, small piece, but a big one about the COVID, COVID-19 and Latino communities, and that is, as many experts have said, it really, the, the virus and its impact highlight the inequities um, that, that impact Latinos and other communities of color. But for Latinos, here's a stat that maybe a lot of people didn't know, the most uninsured race group in the U.S. Correct. So you're starting off, uh, you know, without access to a lot of medical interventions that that certainly could be helpful, which is why it's really important that the government, uh, both the federal and the state, has put aside a lot of requirements so that everybody can get tested and everybody can get treatment, presumably. Yes. Yes. And I think one of the other angles that people aren't talking about, Callie, um, you know, everyone's talking about, um, well, we got to make sure we got to, you know, clean, clean the offices or disinfect schools or, you know, you know, we got to make sure that, uh, you know, airports are still like cleaned up. Um, I don't want to remind people, but not to overgeneralize. And even in the hotel industry and the restaurant industry, um, the majority of people that are doing that are, you know, Latin American and, and are, you know, first generation immigrants or uh, and are day laborers. And so the irony of all this that I think from this crisis that few people are really wanting to get into, and I'm glad Cali, that you and uh, Marcela, and by the way, Marcela, Boston Globe, I, 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 amazing coverage. I mean, local journalism always wins out in times like this. So I'm, I'm telling that to my colleague and friend, Marcela Garcia. But the big question about uh, what's being missed, I think, is is what's happening to these hourly wage, wage earners, these people that are cleaning, um, you know, in the end, you know, you're getting your food. Who's delivering your food? Who's making yeah. your food? I mean, yeah. in the end, with all this talk of where we've lived with this administration about, you know, the the uh, the quote unquote invasion of the immigrant community in the end, the people that are still saving our economy, any semblance of economic activity is being done by immigrant communities. And that to me and, and if they don't have the protections for testing, for access to health care, um, for language access, uh, for worker protection, all those issues um, aren't being talked about when you hear, you know, everyone says work remotely. Um, you know, we're all privileged. Right. And and I think we're forgetting about the people that have to still work. And, and it's and it's not the first and it's not just the first responders and healthcare workers. It's people that, you know, are cooking our meals right now. So I think that that's an issue that we need to kind of dig deeper in. I would totally agree. And that that actually is, you know, I think that's a lot of food for thought for people just hearing that now for the first time. So it's important that this information, the the public health information, get out there in all communities so everybody can be as safe as they can be. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our Latinx roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Marcela Garcia of the Boston Globe. Now, uh, another big piece of this is that um, ICE, the arm of the government which tracks down supposedly criminals who are here illegally and yeah. who have committed com- criminal acts, though, as you both know, um, many people, both advocates and people in uh, office, have pointed out that ICE appears to have gotten out over its skis in many instances. But they just made it a big announcement saying they're going to back off and do what I think a lot of people, Marcella, assume their mission was, which is to go for, uh, to not be going after people who were not criminals, to stop that activity and just uh, 
you know, during this virus particularly, but it took a virus, yeah. to, you know. Yeah, it. no, it's um, it's something that a lot of immigrant uh, activists and, and, and frankly, you know, groups of um, immigration attorneys have been calling for in the last few days. But the reality is also, by the way, to release people in detention who have not been charged with, with a felony, right, with a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, I mean, this guide, this guidance, as, as a lot of people have already pointed out, people who cover this more closely, um, you know, this is the same guideline that the Obama administration had for a while. And the, 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 right. when it comes to immigration enforcement, you, you have to make a distinction between what the actual guidance and policy is versus what's really happening on the ground and whether this is going to give, uh, you know, because sometimes you can have a very broad directive, correct? And then right. people on the ground, agents, you know, field offices have wide latitude to interpret it. And that's ultimately the problem with ICE, right? right. And so, right. you know, we just really have to wait and see how this is going to look like. I mean, Julio and I, I'm sure Julio is, is also aware of this. We've been seeing reports of people getting picked up on the streets. It's, mm, it's heartbreaking yes. stuff. It's people who have yes. to leave their homes to buy groceries and they're getting picked up by ICE and, and getting put in detention on their way to deportation. So, again, we, we I guess this is a step in the right direction, you could call it that. But at, at the end of the day, we really have to see how this looks like on the ground, how this plays out, who is going to be doing what, you know, the, how they're going to interpret in the public safety, quote unquote, right? Like, is is someone who has been here for twenty years and who has no real, you know, criminal record really a threat to public safety in this time of of unprecedented crisis? Right. So right. again, it's um, I I think with us with everything um, with ICE, we just have to take a wait and see approach. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with Marcella on that. I mean, one more th- like I we are getting texts. You know, people. We do get tips, and and people are scared. The immigrant community is scared, and this is why it's important because <laughs> it goes back to my previous point, Callie. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want your food delivered and if you want your your buildings cleaned, and then you have people that you know they they have you know they might have a different status or they're in in the middle of a pending you know status adjustment. Uh, are they going to show up to work? <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds really simplistic. Um, and also immigration courts, this whole notion, you know, there's this also the news that says like immigration courts are suspending hearings. Um, you know, they're still going to do it by telephone and video. Oh, I, so did I don't know that. I, I'm, Wait a minute. Yeah, I know I'm that. looking at the order. Oh, I yeah, see. I'm looking at the order from the Justice Department and I'll, I'll read it really quick. It's like immigration judges may issue standing orders, including orders rega- regarding telephonic appearances by representatives consistent with policy memorandum, blah, 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 from the 20th. And also, immigration judges may conduct any hearing by video teleco- teleconferencing were okay. operationally feasible. Okay. So I think Marcella's right. I, it, it's like, I think people jump t- jump way too much to conclusion to say like, oh, ICE is not going to do anything, yay. Or immigration judges, it's going to be great for the community. But but this is, we're just rolling back to the Obama era. And like we always say, you know, the immigrant community wasn't that down with the Obama era. Right. And I should be clear that the federal immigration offices have of set of of shut down face to face services. But I didn't realize until you just told me that they were continuing on with other stuff. And that's judges. The, yeah, judges. That's judges, shut down yeah. until April the first. Um, so yeah. We'll see so what it's happens. it's government speak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think people 
and and talking with immigrant rights activists, you know, it, it is. It's what Marcella said. It's like it's it's a small step in improvement, but that doesn't mean that, you know, everything's stopping. Yeah. Well, I want to change topics now because, um, you know, some life is going on, even uh, though it may not seem so at this moment. And one part of that is the census, which is very important. So first, let's take a listen. This is Las Vegas Council member Olivia Diaz speaking about why it's important to accurately count the Hispanic community in the 2020 census. Uh, language barrier is huge, and so doing uh, PSAs and advocacy in Spanish is equally important. Your participation equals dollars that can come and bolster a lot of supportive services like housing, free and reduced lunch programs. So I also know that Univision um, has rolled out some new ads ur urging Latinos to take part in the census. Um, but there's another piece to this. I want you to, to, to respond to all of this, that on the census form itself, a number of Latinos feel as though they're not really represented in terms of what box they check. So there, many of them are checking other. So first, the a, the response to the census and Latino community, and whether or not you feel like that's that message is getting through. And second, the the actual census form itself forcing people to choose other on the box. I actually been I wrote an editorial about this uh, about the census and their lagging response uh, or lack of contingency plans uh, around the uh, coronavirus epidemic. And first, I'll address your second point. I, I don't know about you, but I already filled out my census form. I got the online code and I went. And what you said is true. Um, the Obviously, race, we have to make a distinction between race and ethnicity, right? right. So what you're referring to is the race part. Mm -hmm. Right now, you, you even if you choose as ethnicity, if you're a Hispanic origin, you have to pick a race. And for race, it's white, black, Asian, you know, and I think there's something other for indigenous populations or whatever. But under white, actually, for the first time, the census is giving people uh, the opportunity or the choice, I guess, to pick uh, their origin, like Germany or Irish or Italy, for example. But there's no similar, I mean, for, for instance, I always have this question, am I white? But although all this, as of race, right? I'm mm -hmm. a Hispanic origin, I'm Mexican-American, which again, the census does give me the choice of, of speaking, right? If you, if you choose Hispanic origin, you can say Puerto Rican, you can say Cuban, Cuban-American, Mexican, I'm Mexican-American. But when it comes to race, am I white? What else is out there? That's it, right? And so when I was, when I picked white, because I did, what you know when it comes to the white origin there was nothing for me to pick because it was all european hmm. and spain wasn't in it by the way so it was just like okay if, if anything come close to my race right because i'm from mexico it will be you know spanish of spanish right it, but but it was just so confusing i spent like 10 minutes pondering this and because i <laughs> filled this out i also added my husband and i was filling it out for us and he, of course, is very easy because obviously he's white, and I could immediately pick his, you know, his white origin, right. which easy. was Irish. That's an and easy so one. So I'm like, okay, dumb. What about me? So it was just very confusing. <laughs> and I get that the census is trying to add more, you know, or, or bring just more nuance to origins. But the, you know, the nuance is lost when you when you just are, you know, giving people the choice to pick European origin. So. I, I guess I wasn't surprised. I wasn't shocked that, you know, we're not sort of like 
giving Latinos, you know, sort of like the same, um, <laughs> you know, the opportunity, options, I guess, options. to bring yeah. new in, mm-hmm. right, to bring yeah. new in to, to their ethnicity. So anyway, that's one, one part of it. The second part, which I think is even more urgent now in the face of the epidemic, is what is the census going to do? Uh, they have announced some measures, but they're still very much lacking in, in, in their response. There, there have been a lot of calls from, from Congress members. There, there was a group of uh, representatives uh, or members of the Hispanic Congressional Caucus asking the census to delay. So the, the census, obviously, by law, has to deliver results of this count by December 31st. That's by law. But they have a series right. of deadlines. I mean, as you know, the census is such a sprawling and massive and complex exercise, right? And right, it's already right, right. been played yeah. by all these challenges. You know, the the citizenship question, obviously, the biggest of all, but they have had issues hiring workers, too. So to add an epidemic on top of it, it's just impossible to assume that they're going to continue with their timeline, right? So July 31st yeah. is the deadline that the census has to stop counting people. They, they stopped counting people on July 31st. Again, this group of, of congressmen, uh, Hispanic congressmen, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are, are calling for the census to delay, 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 you know, in, in at yeah. least three months, the count, right? And then Congress can adjust the final deadline or, or give them emergency funding. But the, the problem here is that the census hasn't really said what the contingency plans are. This mm. is the first time the census is being offered online. Yeah. And and there there is a whole period for people to go door to door. There's already been a report, by the way, at least one person, a census worker who has tested positive. And so, again, what are we what right, are right. the plans for the census? You know, when, when they have to, you know, when they have to launch their follow ups that involve enumerators, you know, the people going yeah. door to door. Right. What, what's the plan? Are they going to be wearing protective equipment? Are they going to be you know, what is it? I'll give you one last example that's local. In Springfield, and that this has to do with disenfranchised communities, in Springfield, which has a high percentage of Latino, of Latino, a Latino population, high percentage of people who speak Spanish, also a high share of people who don't have access to broadband internet at home, there have been a lot of efforts to help them um, with outreach. Right, the state gave them a ninety, gave the Springfield Springfield Library a ninety thousand dollar grant to basically act as a census center. Well, guess what? The library is closed. So what, what's going to happen? You know, what is the plan? There is no plan. Uh, and, and again, we, we just have to keep the pressure going because, you know, there, there's a risk here that people are going to be undercounted. And the people who are going to be undercounted are the ones that need to be counted the most. That's my guest, Marcela Garcia, editorial writer of the Boston Globe. Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the two things. I mean, they're gonna have to delay it. I mean, it, this is unprecedented. I mean, what 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 can you do? I I don't think people are ready to see census takers in you know hazmat gear like that. Just that's not a good look, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm not trying to be. Can you imagine like in social media, like people like here's my census taker. You know, like like it becomes contagion the movie. But I think to get back to the bigger issue, I'm not that I'm not saying the bigger issue, like the other issue that really just piqued my interest because of Marcella. Just I mean, that is basically you take Marcella's story 
and multiply it by I don't know Marcelo like thirty million, fifty million, oh, yeah. <laughs> like 50. in terms 50 of fifty or sixty, yeah, least. yeah, in the race yeah. ethnicity. But I think it gets to a bigger point um, when you talk about it and the way you said it, Marcelo, because this whole no- because that's what happened the last time around. There was this false, you know, a lot of Latinos were like, oh, I don't know what to pick. Uh, I, I I'm, I'll pick white, but then I can't associate with a country, but it's my ethnicity. And then the New York Times says, you know, more Latinos are choosing to be white like Italians and Irish. And it's like, you know, I remember writing about yes, all that, taking that. on the New oh, York yeah, Times. Yes. Remember that? And I was like, so th- I think we're going down that same route. But this is what I think it is. Ready? Like, I actually think um, the Eurocentricity of the, you know, the U.S. government is showing more and more. And it's a question of representation. And I think the census needs to wake up and realize that in the end, it's still a white European organization <laughs> and it doesn't have a lot of Marcela Garcia's in the room going, yo, you should look at it this way. And I think they started listening to that because like, for example, Naleo, which is a national association of Latino elected officials has been super involved in trying to do that, but it comes down to issues of representation. And I don't think Latinos are at the table directly challenging this. They're, we're kind of like, consulted on it mm-hmm. but but there's not a lot of people inside the census or and, and i've talked to people in the census it's very frustrating yeah and i think if they just listen to marcela garcia and bring her in for two weeks i think we'd solve this problem yeah okay <laughs> well i want to i want to move on because i do want to squeeze this in because while all this is happening as well there is an election going on it doesn't seem like it but there is and um there's something that popped up that had been popping up anyway before we got to this point where where joe biden appears to be the presumptive nominee now and and bernie sanders is considering what 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 future there may be for his campaign if any and that is that a lot of uh young latino voters were very attracted to Bernie and supported him. And I was really curious about why that was and whether that that power block, I'm assuming it to be a pl- power block, how applicable will that be in a general election? Will we yeah. see, you know, this is what I, I, I'd like to hear from both of you. I, I, I'm actually in the middle of writing several pieces that have been, that I've, that have been held for three weeks because of the coronavirus crisis. But Callie, I've, this issue has fascinated me, and I've been following it from since Iowa. And I say Iowa because there's a report by UCLA uh, Latino Department, like Latino Latino Studies Political Department, that looked at uh, Iowa caucus sites where there were Latino dominant um, communities, mostly immigrant communities, mostly Mexican and Central American families, that Bernie Sanders won handily. And there's a there's an argument that. To be made that if he didn't have that support, he wouldn't even won the popular vote. Right. So what you see is, you know, it happened in Nevada as well. And what what's happened is that in 2016, Sanders was losing Latinos in urban areas like Las Vegas. But notice that young Latinos were kind of into him, and the campaign actually made the strategic decision to invest into communities like in Nevada, in Arizona, in Texas. And guess what? He won young Latinos, but it's the same thing that's happening with him overall with young voters. As much as young Latinos are coming out, they're the, they're the, they're very progressive. They're one of the fastest growing groups in the Democratic Party, but they're also very independent. Um, they just I mean, they came out, but it just wasn't enough in the end. And the argument that I make is that Joe Biden um, 
decided that he didn't really need young Latinos to get the nomination. And, and he made the play on, you know, moderate black voters, white suburban uh, communities, non-educated whites. Remember, you know, and, and that's where he's going to win. Okay, but so he but didn't what win happens the in, the, vote. in the general election now? Where do those young uh, Latino voters go? That's the question. They're not down with Biden right now. I think he has to have a come to Jesus meeting with, with these young Latinos <laughs> and a lot of people in the Latino community because what he's done is he's, I don't know about you, Marcela, but I was talking to so many voters. They're not into him as much as the people no. think they no, are. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. And, 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 and I also have to give props to Latino Rebels and in the thick, uh, the podcast that you host, because you have been on top of this for sure. And it's where I actually been getting most of my news and, and uh, research on this. But it's, it's absolutely true. This is a question for Biden. And, and a lot of people immediately reject him. And not even, I mean... I think most most Latinos would be open, except for the fact that they're still kind of clueless about how to reach out. And I think this is what Bernie exactly. Sanders, the campaign, did immediately right. You have to you have to hit them uh, with the. It's not just about the right messaging, but you have to ask. You have to ask for the vote. Uh, and this comes to the question, the bigger question in the Democratic Party that the Democratic establishment has always taken our communities for granted. And and Bernie Sanders did not do that. And so that is the big question. Is the Biden campaign finally going to get on with the new playbook and with these uh, with the notion that they have to change it? They cannot go to Latinos with the same playbook. Marcella, my question then is, is, should we assume that older Latino voters were for Biden? Because I'm just curious about the age breakdown. In some places. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a generational divide. Absolutely, there was a generational divide. But, you know, you know how we, we saw this sort of narrative that young, the young voters didn't vote in the numbers that the Bernie campaign um, was expecting? Well, young Latinos did vote. And those were the ones, like Julio was saying, were propelling the Sanders campaign. So Biden, absolutely, even if he has the old Latino quote-unquote vote, he has to appeal to the young one because they are engaged, they are involved, and they will, you know, if hit with the right messaging, if if they do the outreach the right way, they, they you know, they will consider Biden, absolutely, versus hmm. Trump, absolutely, but you have to do the work. Hmm. Okay. Callie, like from a local perspective, Sanders won Holyoke, Chelsea, uh, he won all the immigrant communities. Everett, East I mean, Boston. those East are Boston. All... He killed it in East Boston, which is the highest percentage of Latinos. Hmm. People need to look. And Chicago, he won all the Latino districts in Chicago. So that's what I'm saying. It's like urban areas and places like in the West and Southwest. He's done really well, but it wasn't enough for him to get the nomination. Okay. Well, we're going to be hearing a little bit more about this, I hope, um, as time goes on. Um, I have to also ask just 30 seconds, the AOC influence for Bernie Sanders, did, that paid off for him, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Yeah, with young that Latinos. was real. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was real. It just wasn't enough. The numbers weren't there yet. But the future of young young Latinos are the future of the Democratic Party, and they got to get those voters now. Okay. Well, once again, you two are rock stars. I thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital editor for the Futuro Media Group. He's co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. And Marcella Garcia is the editorial writer for the Boston Globe. 
Coming up, shoppers have been lining up at grocery and liquor stores, preparing to be inside for a long time, likely tucked into many of their bags, canned wine and plant-based burgers. Our food and wine experts weigh in on the evolving tastes of 2020 foodies. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. We can't believe it's not beef. Plant-based burgers are taking the fast food world by storm. But how much better for you are they really? And we're over the moon about space wine. An exciting research project is examining the effects of zero gravity on the wine aging process. Plus, that's not the only high-flying beverage around these days either. Canned wine is taking to the sky thanks to JetBlue. And why you should make ooey-gooey Georgian comfort food your first obsession of 2020. Our food and wine gurus return to dish out the latest in culinary trends. Joining me now in the studio, Jonathan Alsup, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Hi. And Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hi, Callie. And we're starting with you, Apple Lady, because <laughs> there's this new apple called Cosmic Crisp. Yes. It launched last year. We didn't have a chance to uh, get our hands Actually, on it. Actually, launched this year. Oh, this, this year. is the oh, first year. Was, yeah. They announced they it last, announced it, last yeah. year. It lasts for a year. Yeah. So <laughs> there are these bars that new Apple varieties seem to have to hit in order to make it to market and do well. And um, first of all, they have to sort of have the flavor profile of Honeycrisp because that's been such a runaway hit. They have to not brown when you cut into them, at least for a long time, so that you can use them in salads and things. They have to have this like explosive juiciness and they have to keep really well. That is a real selling point for, you know, if you're trying to sell to like large, um, like McDonald's, for example, for their apple slice packages. And any kind of large industrial, uh, you know, outfit is going to want apples that keep longer in storage. That So here's Cosmic Crisp. I want to mm. know what you think. This yeah. apple is the most heavily, there's never been a, a marketing and PR budget for any new fruit or vegetable uh, compared with this Cosmic Crisp. It's like okay. the biggest yum. launch of any fruit or vegetable. Let me just say yum. It's it does quite have, tasty. It's very, very sweet. Yeah. It has this incredible crunch and mm -hmm. sort of like ex pretty explosive juiciness. To me, it's almost a little too sweet. But, you know, I think if you like a sweet apple, it's... It's a, it's a little zippy. Mm -hmm. um, it's tart. That's now, what I like it. How old is this apple? Yeah. Actually, it's fun. This one is more acidic. Than the last one I had, I like it better. Okay. So these apples are harvested. Here, I'm going to look on the bottom, see how old it is. <laughs> They're harvested in October in Washington State. They're only grown in Washington. And then they actually store them for a couple months because the flavor does improve. Wow. And then they release them in December. And so I, I was looking for them like end of November, early December, couldn't find them. Now I'm seeing them in Whole Foods, Wegmans. Um, I think I saw them at Star Market. So they're, they're pretty much, much are they? I'm scared to know. They're premium price. Like they're they're up in the sort of Honeycrisp, you know, two something a pound kind of wow. range. So 
millions of dollars have gone into promoting this yeah, apple. It has advantages over Honeycrisp. Growers are really eager to adopt it. Hmm. And yeah, it's a really good apple. It, you know, it kind of hits all the marks. And I, I particularly like it for the texture. I like how when you hold it, it's like heavy and you can feel like when you squeeze it, it is just so packed with juice. Like mm -hmm. those cells mm -hmm. are almost ready to explode. Mm. It's interesting. Okay, so next time you have to cook with it and then come tell us what you think because I'm <laughs> mm -hmm. really interested in how it cooks. By the way, apples are the second biggest selling fruit in the U.S. after bananas, something I did not know. Ooh. So this has a huge market. Well, something else that might have a huge market is wine in space. <laughs> Jonathan? Yeah. Um, okay, what is this wine? So <laughs> back in November, they were resupplying the International Space Station, and there is an wow. actual experiment by the French. Um, of course. I, I didn't really think I had to actually say that. Um, they sent up six bottles of, uh, we'll not say what the wine is, I Googled this with all of the vigor that I possess, and I could, I could not find anyone who said what the wine was. Mm. But it did reveal that it was a red Bordeaux, okay. which is traditionally one of the most age-worthy, ageable. You know, it's a wine that people typically put in their cellar and age for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is, uh, what does zero gravity, if anything, do to that? Hmm. And I guess we either have to go up there and taste it and figure that out, or they have to bring it back to Earth and we have to taste it. Well, and I think figure they're going to figure it. This is my guess. They're going to figure it out. They're going to bring it back to Earth and charge us a lot of money yes. and say, this has zero gravity testing. Watch what I say. Well, I bet and, you that happens. Well, and, stra <laughs> and strangely, although this seems like a total coincidence, so Natalia uh, Douglas, a Boston Wine School graduate, is working on a project where she is aging wine underwater hmm. okay. in the cool, cold, high-pressure underwater hmm. environment. Like hydrophonic, but with wine. It would, but, <laughs> but, with, but with wine. Mm -hmm. And so um, there does seem to be, you know, you could even extend this a little bit to the aging the wine in the bourbon barrels a lot of things are opening up in the wine world in terms of ideas. Hmm. Zero G is maybe the craziest of them, but you've also got these other ways of storing, aging, and manipulating uh, wine into something. Well, that's very interesting, but not all the way to space, but right here, kind of halfway between Earth and space is Jet Blue with this new canned wine. Tell me why this is like a big deal, because... I guess this makes it official that canned wine is a big deal. First of all, this is fantastic. This is a partially local story. Um, the wine producer is a winery named Archer Roos, and their offices are down in Seaport. They make wine in New York, and everything they do goes into cans. Hmm. And this is their motto. You know, we can what we do. We, 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 do, we, do what, we do what we can. We can what we do. Why did I? It took and, me a minute. Boom, boom. They, and, He's here and all they, week, folks. And they now have a partnership, a relationship with JetBlue, so that Archer Roos is the official wow. wine of JetBlue. And, you know, on just a very practical level, you know, each ounce of wine comes with X less ounces of packaging Compared with a bottle yes. of wine, mm -hmm. a can of wine is much, much lighter. So just from a purely practical standpoint, you know, transporting that stuff at 500 miles an hour at 35,000 feet 
you know, if you're transporting a thousand pounds less of that a year on your planes, you're going to spend that, yeah. that much less in fuel, and and it's a very practical term. But I just I love the winery. I love the women who run it and own it. And I just really exciting. I think it's just a great connection. I will just say this. We will see if JetBlue gives us the whole can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I seem to only get the whole can if I ask for seltzer. Otherwise, it's like a cup. I, we'll I, I think with wine, you're going to get the whole can. You're not going to have to ask for the whole can. You're going to be paying I'll, for I'll, it. I'll check this out, though. I'm flying JetBlue soon. And I, I, would, I would check this out and report back. All righty. Amy, I want to talk to you about Lobney and then something that sounds related to um, Lebanese garlic spread? Yes. So these okay. are sort of the hot new spreads of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of riding on the um, the wave of interest in Eastern Mediterranean and Middle Eastern food. So labne is uh, a very concentrated yogurt cheese. It's made by adding yogurt to a whole milk usually cow's milk, actually almost always cow's milk, and allowing that to culture and then strain it so it's thick. And it's, you know, it's really meant in to be used in savory applications, unlike, say, Greek yogurt, which is a less strained product where some of the whey has been strained with labneh. It's more of the, the whey is strained out. And it's really meant to be drizzled with olive oil, topped with, you know, it might be a chili paste or some zatar spices or, you know, eaten with pita bread or vegetables. It's just a really easy and delicious way to do a starter, honestly, for entertaining at home. Get yourself some labneh. You can find it at more and more supermarkets. Certainly, we have the most incredible resource in Watertown, all these fabulous you know, Armenian markets sell it. And then I want to talk about Oh, wait this. a minute. Let me just say that I had Labni for the first time sometime last year. Yeah. In a restaurant. I wish I could remember the name of it. It's a small restaurant on the way to Porter Square or just past Porter Square. And it was so good. It's so good. It was, it's like super I, I creamy and I was expecting it to be yogurt. But yes. it was, I was like, what is this? I'm just yes. scraping it up with yeah. the pita. My friend delicious. served it at a party and I, I kind of planted myself next to it. And, was just, and she had these amazing kind of roasted vegetables and, you know, things that you could sort of scoop it up yeah. with. Oh, my God. It I was in really heaven. Good. And technically, it's a cheese. It is technically it's, a oh, cheese. Really? Technically, whatever, whatever are the rules or the, or the thresholds of right. Right. Fast so a soft and liquid. Cheese. It's mm-hmm. technically yes. a cheese. It's sort of. It's um, like a yogurt cream cheese, basically. Okay. Yeah. But it's it's looser than what we think of as a, the block of cream cheese. Boy, and then good. so tum is this amazing Lebanese yogurt oh, dip. We got a and we have some right here. Mm-hmm. I bought it at Garlic and Lemons okay. in Alston, oh, which is, is a fantastic. That is an un- so good. That is an unbelievable. If you like garlic and you like lemons, it's strong. Wow. Now you have to like garlic. Okay, oh, I, I love it. garlic. It's potent. So this the cool thing about this is it's. An alternative. There's a lot of vegan themes in my stuff today. Mm. Um, it, this is good. It's mm. it's an alternative to mayonnaise. It's it's garlic, olive oil, and mm. lemon and salt. Spain has its own version of this alioli, huh. but this is the Lebanese version, and it's potent. I wouldn't like serve it straight up as a dip, but or I would go on a date after. I would mm. top <laughs> things, yeah, but I would top things yes. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it mm. on, you know, sort of a thin layer Ro- on bread. Roasted potatoes. Mm-hmm. Boy, this is um, good. Wow. Yes. Something a dip, with paprika, dip with maybe something like, like that. a smoky yes. paprika or yeah. something. That's yes. awesome. Yeah. Yes, dip grilled awesome. meat or like slather on is grilled things. No, not at all. This is like two bucks and oh, it's wow. a nice size container. Wow. And you can make it at home in a blender. Very it's easy. More... And you're not worrying about the raw eggs. 
Because this is more example mayonnaise. of our embracing Middle Eastern spices and tastes. Right. Because the Zatar thing is really big now, for example. Right, right. You know? Yes. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Well, Jonathan, what is this that you've poured for us yes. before I ask you another question? So I brought a couple of wines. Mm-hmm. This time of year, people start talking about seasonal wine drinking. And mm-hmm. usually what they mean by that is strong, dark, heavy, intense reds in winter, light, zippy whites in the summer. The opposite also works. We can drink seasonally to help remind us a little bit of the summer. So mm-hmm. I brought this white wine. It's from the Cote de Rhone. It's a mm-hmm. winery called Domaine Boisson. It's a blend of three different white grapes. Mm-hmm. It's from a little town called Chiron. And, you know, in France, all of these little towns have to fight to get their official designation as an actual official wine place. And Chiron is the most recent of these regions that got their official designation. Doesn't look like it's too expensive if I if I can see well from it's, here. Yeah, uh, seventeen ninety nine. Right, wow. right. This would hold up with the tome. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna, you know. that's gonna go with yeah, that. Yeah, I um, would have it with fondue. I don't know. It's to me, it's saying fondue. Fondue, mm. uh, pork, veal. Yeah, um, really good with sauces and just interesting in the wine world. We use this word complex all yes. the time. Sometimes it means absolutely nothing, but in the case of a wine like this, where you have three different grapes. You're tasting three different grapes in one wine. Here's a wine that is literally complex. Hmm. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guests are UTR food and wine contributors Amy Traverso and Jonathan Alsop, and we're discussing the hottest culinary trends of the year so far or Jonathan's reverse engineering of what you should be drinking (laughs) in the wintertime. All right. (laughs) And what is this now? um, It uh, looks good. Rosé. Yes, you know, Um, I love it. Rosé of (laughs) Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. This is a winery, a California winery called Calera. Mm -hmm. They make some great, super high-end Pinot Noirs, other members of the Pinot family. When people think about summer, they automatically think of rosé. So you really want to keep that summer vibe going. We keep it going with a nice rosé. In this case, a rosé of Pinot Noir. If, you love, if you're a Pinot Grigio fan, if you're a Pinot Noir fan, you're going to love this rosé of Pinot Noir. Well, it holds up. It's not a light, bright one. You know, it's it's got a little structure to it. So, Stra- yeah, so strange, I think, strangely, yeah. mm-hmm. when you make rosés from like Grenache, Syrah, Mourvedre, bigger, blacker grapes, they tend to be lighter rosés. Mm-hmm. And when you make a rosé out of this lighter Pinot Noir, you get they something tend to different. Be, it's a little counterintuitive, but they tend to be gutsier. Mm. So. All right. Well, Amy, you're wading into the modern veganism with the plant-based burgers. Some people are happy and other people are not. Yeah, and this (laughs) is driving me crazy, actually. So, yeah, remember when the Impossible Burger first came out? Mm -hmm. It was sort of portioned out to a select number of high-end chefs who put them on the menu, and it was this, like, fancy, exciting, plant-based, like, high science. It felt very, you know, Silicon Valley, very Cambridge to go eat an Impossible Burger and pay, like, 18 bucks for it. 
Now, Burger King has the Impossible Whopper. I had one last night. Mm. It's quite good. Mm. White Castle has the Impossible Slider. Carl's Jr. has Beyond Burger. Qdoba has an Impossible Taco. KFC has been experimenting with alternate chicken, sort of vegan chicken. McDonald's is rolling out some vegan burgers in Canada, but they have not yet made it to the States. And now, all of a sudden, there's this backlash. And I'm suspicious of this backlash mm. because, you know, in terms of health, people are like, well, it's a processed food. Well, you know what? Yogurt is a processed food. Like, we process food. (laughs) Yes, it is highly processed, but it's also pretty transparent what's in it. Some people are like, oh, but the heme, the Impossible Burger uses genetically modified ingredients. Now, some people might have a blanket objection to that. That's fine. The Beyond Burger, which is sort of the competitor, Mm -hmm. does not use GMOs. If Mm -hmm. you're concerned about it, you could have Beyond Burger. Beyond questions of personal health, beyond questions of whether you think it's okay to eat meat or not or to kill animals for meat. It is the two greatest sources of climate change-causing gases, Mm. methane and carbon dioxide, are transportation and agriculture. Mm. Eating animals absolutely has an impact on the environment. And one thing we could do to reduce our impact is... Eat less, yeah, eat more Mm -hmm. plant-based. So eating an occasional burger, eating one meal a day that's vegan, to me, makes perfect sense. And the whole theory behind these burgers is basically it's really, really hard to get people to change, completely change the way they eat. I mean, look at how hard it is to diet, how hard it is to, Mm -hmm. like, you know, to go vegetarian if you love bacon. So the theory is if we can just make plant-based alternatives to the foods that we know people love, and what do we love more than burgers, then we can really make a dent in, you know, Mm -hmm. climate impact. So... I kind of feel like there's a little bit of this perfect is the enemy of good Mm. with the backlash against these burgers. One of the main criticisms is that these burgers are higher in sodium than a beef Mm. burger. Well, the first thing you do when you make a hamburger is you season it with salt. (laughs) It's just pre-salted. It's not. In terms of, you know, saturated fats, that they're actually, they are better. Um, Mm -hmm. They are better on a lot of measures. Yes, they're highly caloric. Mm -hmm. They're not a low calorie food. Mm -hmm. But in terms of important, you know, measures that we look at for human health, they're an improvement. They are not a health food. They're not selling them as a health food. They're selling them as a food that has a lighter footprint mm-hmm. and that still allows you to eat the kind of food you like. So I cooked up a couple impossible burgers you can't really get. Um, right, I've had and I've had Beyond. Yeah, so they this is the Beyond Burger. Um, you can buy this at Whole Foods. I've also had the Dunkin' it. Donut sausage, and I thought yeah, it was good, that's, too. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. I made this at home. My kitchen smelled really good. It smelled like I was cooking meat. It, it, was, yeah, it, it sizzled tastes, in the pan. Yeah. Um, it tastes good. I, I think it tastes good. I would it eat this good. happily. Very, very similar. Right. I think it tastes good. Yeah, and, you know, what makes a burger a burger, whether it's good for you or bad for you, is not just the meat layer. If you uh, if you take just stuff. If, if you just take the meat layers out of a Big Mac mm-hmm. and slide in like unimaginable burger in there, mm-hmm. you still have all of the rest of everything. There may not be this gigantic direct impact on your calorie intake mm-hmm. there too. So mm-hmm. so there's more to it than just right. It's yeah. You know, what are you putting on yeah. it? I personally want this, Wallace this, Shawn to come up baby, with the baby inconceivable oh, well, that burger. Would, that, would be, that would be great. <laughs> I would be 100%. All right. Well, I think they're here to stay myself, so we'll be seeing more variations of them. And there's new sausages. Sausages yeah. are the I next big to meat, to meat product. That. Yeah. All right, Jonathan. Now, we've talked very much about wine in space, wine on the plane. But, in fact, U.S. wine consumption has dropped for the first time in 25 years, and that's actually connected to something else, yes. which is, I believe, the rise of these hard seltzers. So you tell me. Silicon Valley Bank 
which you know studies the wine market, not just because they love wine, but because they invested in wineries to billions and billions of dollars. Last year, they saw the peak of U.S. wine consumption. Since 1994, wine consumption in the U.S. had been going, had been going up and up and up and up. Last year, they saw it flatten out, and this year, it's down. And so this is actually, this is actually the second year of the no-growth market loss for wine in the USA. The U.S. Part of it is the aging of the largest wine-consuming market. Part of it is what you describe in hard seltzer, craft cocktails, craft brew, distilled spirits. The reality is that millennials and young people and people coming into their wine lives they love wine. They love wine just fine. They love wine just like everybody else, but they love other things too. Mm. And that is something that has really got the wine market totally freaked out, right? Because things have been going in this beautiful straight line since 1994. Mm. And now all of a sudden people are saying, I guess I have to get up from behind my desk and do something, you know, because now it's not going in a straight line anymore. And what people are reacting with is to try to think of ways to compete with the hard seltzer market. Mm. So here you are, a wine maker, a wine lover, a wine importer, a wine salesperson. Now you have to compete with something that isn't even wine that's eating into your markets. What's next summer's White Claw? Mm. White Claw, you know, the rosé market last summer still went up, but the perception is that White Claw took a big giant bite out of that. What's going to be next summer's White, White Claw, Claw mm. that people are going to have to fight against and are going to have to defeat for market share? We we didn't know that hard seltzer was part of our market mm -hmm. share. We didn't even know that was out there. And then all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere and we're competing with all of these new elements. Well, I think that's a reality. But the other reality is that I'll be drinking wine for a long time. So I'll make up, I'll make up for the drop. That's what's going to happen. And right now the reality is I'm out of time. So I'm glad to have both of you join me. And I look forward to next time. Oh, thank you, Kelly. <laughs> thank Jonathan Alsop is founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. And Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at WGBH.org, news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and Francisca Monahan, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.